Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome to our Game Week 3 episode for the World Soccer Talk podcast. I'm your host, Nipun Chopra. Thanks for joining us yet again. After a weekend where we finally saw every team in the Premier League post points on that table and a continuation of the 100% record for Manchester United, Manchester City and Chelsea, there is much to discuss as we head into the international break. In order to discuss all of these things, I am joined by the brilliant duo of Karthik Krishnayar and Chris Hennage. By the way, let me clarify something at this point. I have talked to Chris Hennage on this podcast or on, on other podcasts for about three years. It wasn't until earlier this week where I was listening to one of my favorite podcasts, which is uh, The Front Three, where I learned that I've been mispronouncing Chris's last name for the last three years. So Chris, is it Hennage or Hennage? Uh, it's the second one, but I, I'm really not fussed. It's my mum used to prefer the first one because it sounded a bit posher. <laughs> okay, in that case, we're sticking with Kristen Hennage, and I'll I'll make sure I, you know, raise my eyebrow when I say it as well. So, <laughs> so welcome, gentlemen. Let's uh, get into the nitty gritty of this weekend. In part one, we'll uh, so the way we'll split this up. Uh, we'll have more structure as we go along with the season, but for now, the table is pretty fluid. So we uh, we're just picking the games. Uh, in their parts as we usually do in the order they were played, as well as uh, we'll give you an update on the leagues around uh, Europe as well. So let's start, uh, Karthik, with the Tottenham-Liverpool game. Uh, a 1-1 draw, and Liverpool were dominant in the early portions of the game. Um, and I guess what I want to start this conversation with is what Liverpool were able to do to Tottenham. Which uh, And this is something that very few teams could do to Tottenham last season, Liverpool being actually one of them who did that, this to them last season as well, which is they were, open, uh, they, they were able to open up Tottenham's defense in those central midfield and central defensive areas. Uh, and I want to talk to you about that because it showed the, just the brilliant attacking flair that Liverpool can have on their day. Right, they can have it for... 15, 20, 25, 30 minutes. They can never have it for a full game with the level, the intensity they play with, uh, the the kind of uh, fitness levels that are required to play at that level. So I think once again, we saw a situation where they were very good for a period of time. I mean, just out of sight, off the charts, good for a period of time in, in a different way than a Barcelona or a Bayern, but similarly scary and dangerous if you're the opposition like they were in in from minutes 45 to about 65 
against Arsenal, but um, they have to settle for a draw because uh, they you can't sustain that level of play. Uh, that having been said, they have four points with, from two trips to North London, and that's mm-hmm. uh, that may be more than anyone else gets this season. Yeah, they definitely have a t- have a tough set of uh, of games those first five games, and I think it's very it's vintage Liverpool, uh, Chris that. It's likely that the the game they'll drop the most points is ends up being the last week's loss to Hull City, and they'll end up getting points on away trips and and beating the likes uh, of Arsenal. Yeah, the, I think the the Burnley game showed their inability maybe to dictate with the ball, and I think we talked about that last week. My concern for, for Liverpool, and it's something that I did kind of expect, was. They have the likes of Coutinho, Firmino, these guys who can uh, play through the lines a little bit and, and carry the ball. I'm not seeing much production from the likes of Vinaldum though, and Henderson. And I think Vinaldum is the biggest culprit of this at the minute. And I've seen a fair few Liverpool fans voice these concerns. It's just his inability to impact the game in, in anything meaningful. Now, whenever I think of him, I think of him actually a lot more advanced than Klopp is playing him. So I'm surprised that he decided to invest £25 million in a player that really is going to be nullified by the position he's playing in at the minute. He's, he's not going to be able to score goals. He's not really, I would say, much of a creator in that sense. He's not someone that will be able to to break through a, a defence from deep. He's actually someone that needs to be as close to the penalty box as possible to maybe work off a striker or, or kind of work around knockdowns, something like that. And it's it's the one sort of element of Liverpool at the minute that I just see as, as an, an awkward fit and a little bit of maybe them not being as fluent as they possibly could be. So I would be curious to see how his position changes and evolves during the season because I don't think realistically it can, t- can continue the way it is. Karthik, Chris talks about awkward fits. So at this point, we have to talk about the Daniel, Daniel Sturridge conundrum at Liverpool. He's being played in a position that, according to him and according to most, is not his best position. Uh, had some, let's just say... Uh, not very well thought out comments in the press where, I mean, he didn't say that he's, uh, wouldn't play, um, you know, in, in a very elaborate way. He basically said that he didn't really want to play that position. It wasn't the best for him, uh, which wasn't the best idea. I think, I think Klopp handled it well, but what happens with Sturridge now in that position? I think, uh, maybe it is early days, but perhaps we're starting to see a realization of Klopp that while Sturridge is an exceptional footballer, probably the most talented footballer on that Liverpool squad, he has to build a system that isn't that isn't built around Sturridge because of the fact that he's not available. It's, um, it's a conundrum, right? It seems like they have so much attacking talent and a defined set way Jurgen Klopp wants to play. And he expects a certain type of... Uh, type of movement and he expects a certain type of movement off the ball as well, or or not just off the ball, but uh, without the ball, without possession, that Daniel Sturridge is just kind of a, in spite of the fact that he's pacey, he's quick. He seems like the kind of guy who could play a center, central forward, center forward position in this, uh, in this setup, similar to uh, Obama young at, uh, at Dortmund and prior to that, Robert Lewandowski, Obviously, those are two elite, elite players. But Sturridge, when he's fit, is, is at that level, right? Or has the ability yep, to score that many goals. Uh, but, the, but the reality is he does not do the, the, the kind of defensive work that you need to do without the ball in, 
advanced areas that R- Roberto Firmino does, or I-, I presume Danny Ings will do if Danny Ings, when he's fit, is playing that center forward position. So, I, I or, or the kind of work uh, Divock Origi does. Origi works really hard. Uh, he may not be the, the best finisher. We've seen that uh, both in his uh, club career and his international career, but I can see why he's at a club like Liverpool, because his work rate, uh, if he's got good players around him, is just really complimentary and, and, and uh, something you can't find in a lot of guys. So, Sturridge has to work hard and he needs to stop shooting off his mouth, quite frankly. This is a, actually, while you were talking there, Chris, I was struck by something. So uh, are we talking about Klopp in a way that's maybe unfair? Because perhaps we're talking about, I agree with what Karthik said, that, that you know, he doesn't put in the defensive, uh, uh, doesn't put in the defensive shift that a lot of those other players would. But at the end of the day, if you have, an, if you have Sturridge playing as a striker, how relevant is it that he plays those uh, those uh, defensive positions? I know in this case, defense means that high pressure, the Gingen press. But perhaps we're being a little unfair to Klopp. What do you think? I think it reminds me ever so slightly of the Joe Hart situation. Because I think very often when a situation like this occurs, we try to... Uh, Select who is in the right, who is in the wrong, who is in mm. the who is the villain, who is the hero, etc. I think actually both sides can have a valid argument. I think Daniel Sturridge is a very talented striker. I don't think he's the best fit for the team at the minute and the style. I actually think Divock Origi is what Sturridge could be if he changed a bit, but he doesn't want to change. And you would argue in changing him, what else do you change about his makeup as a player? So that in itself is something that I think is, is getting lost in the, the crossfire here. I think it's very difficult as well because Liverpool fans clearly think very highly of Sturridge and for a good period when they challenged for the league, when they had Suarez, he was so central to that narrative and that resurgence of the team. So you almost start to think you have to keep him around if you want to achieve anything, mm-hmm. which I think, funnily enough, applies to Hart as well. I'd be tempted if I was Liverpool to see if you could sell him. Um, and of course that could open them up to make the same mistake that that Chelsea did when they sold him in the first place but I just don't see him being a good enough fit now Um, I think he's a very talented striker he's unfortunate to have had the injury problems he has I think he'd work better with a different team though and and I think the longer you keep him there the the worse it starts to reflect on the team and equally the more often you you have a result that maybe isn't favourable the more people be it media fans or whatever, will trot out the fact that why isn't Daniel Sturridge playing? That might not be the answer. Just that one player might not be the answer. It could be a multitude of other reasons that are in no way influenced by Daniel Sturridge's presence. You know, I I agree with you 100%. Uh, there's a lot of Liverpool list, uh, support or fans of the, uh, the podcast who are listening right now who are yelling, saying, would you sell Sturridge if he was at Newcastle? Would you sell, sell Sturridge if he was at United or City? Uh, and the the argument that you're making, which I think is entirely valid, is that if you have a manager who's come in, who's trying to build something like the way Klopp is, he's trying to build, you know, rise, bring a club out of the ashes, a great club like Liverpool, you need exactly the kind of player that fits your system. And at the end of the day, even though Sturge is a game changer and is a brilliant footballer, if he doesn't fit the system... At the end of the day, you have to move him on. And I, I've made this mm. point before, um, and I agree with you. One last question here, Karthik, about 
uh, Klopp, um, and then we talk about Tottenham because we haven't really talked about them. So one thing that I found very interesting about Klopp last year, and I made this mistake myself, was that we talked about Klopp's brilliant run with Liverpool in in uh, the UEFA the uh, in the Europa League where they got to the final and the general analysis we gave was look what he's doing with a bunch of players that aren't even his own imagine what he can do next season well we're here and to be honest I'm not as impressed as I was last season so have we come to this point where we have to start analyzing Klopp I, I think we should analyze Klopp more beyond his amazing ability to almost manipulate the media and he's a very charming person he's incredibly likable even as a Manchester United supporter you would be a very biased supporter if you didn't like Klopp as a human being so at what point do we step away from this love for Klopp and analyze him as a manager not after three matches all of which were away from home two of them against two of the top three finishers last season let's give it some time I I, I would say you're you're close on that. I think he certainly doesn't deserve a pass uh, for this season. But when we get to Christmas time, when we get to that run of fixtures, let's see where Liverpool are in the league. I suspect they won't be very high. Although I have to say they've gotten off to a bit of a better start than than I expected. I, I thought they would have three points at this point, uh, three points against Burnley, yeah. and in fact they have four. They have four <laughs> points, three against Arsenal and one against Spurs, which are better results than I thought they'd get in either of those games. So uh, it's uh, it, it's it's a little bit of a long slog, but it still doesn't seem to look right, right? He yeah. doesn't have a real sense of what his best team is, uh, uh, what the kind of um, setup he wants between these players. I think that that's a continuing problem, right? And that will continue to be a problem until he makes some uh, some decisions about mm-hmm. players, including Daniel Sturridge. I think what Chris said earlier is absolutely right. And, and I think it becomes a problem if you keep him in the team and then he becomes the solution, especially for, uh, and we're going to get into this when we talk about Raheem Sterling and, and Joe Hart and all this stuff, but especially for, for lazy English journalists who will always find some sort of... Uh, in an England national team player who isn't playing or will turn on a manager who isn't playing an England national team player. So uh, it might be best just for Klopp's own uh, uh, continued love affair with the press and to keep the dressing room harmonious to, to, to ship storage out in the next three days. Karthik, I want to stick with you with this Tottenham question. Uh, we talked about Tottenham a, last, a, lot, a lot last season about how well they played. Uh, this season, they haven't started as well as you and myself and a lot of people expected them to uh, based on how well they did last season until the last two or three games. So I want to ask you, usually we we analyze these things in terms of Tottenham has an advantage over a lot of teams because they have continuity in the team. They haven't sold, they haven't lost Harry Kane, they haven't lost, uh, you know, Eric, uh, they haven't lost uh, Dele Alli, they haven't lost Ericsson, they haven't lost Pochettino, etc., etc. They haven't lost their defenders. So therefore they'll come out of the blocks, they'll be strong. But perhaps we're seeing the opposite of that, and which we're also seeing at Leicester, which is that when you don't replenish the squad in a, in a significant way and you see the teams around you signing the likes of Pogba and Gundogan, etc., does that have an effect of dropping morale on a team that would usually have continuity? 
season also hmm. I, I i don't know i'm i'm a little bit stunned by spurs start i, I that that's that's a, a good point maybe other than jansen having not signed and, and wanyama wanyama who slid right in right because dembele has been suspended they have not made a meaningful signing and perhaps that's led to some sort of uh uh malaise in the squad and they need to freshen up everybody else is fighting for places fight, fighting for um comp- there's comp- competition at those squads if anything spurs who already have somewhat of a thin squad seem to be getting thinner. Ryan Mason on his way out. Right. Ventilov has been loaned out. And Chadley uh, is going to West yep. Brom, it appears. So, yeah, it's, it's a very, very good question. Pochettino, uh, Pochettino demands um, in terms of fitness and type of movement and running and pressing similar – uh, he doesn't quite have the glamour of Klopp uh, because he doesn't have the personality of Klopp, right? Mm-hmm, right. But uh, – it's a similar similar type style, and it's been more successful to this point in England than Klopp's has been. Obviously, he has a couple of years on Klopp, but both at Southampton and, and Spurs, uh, he's been very successful. But you wonder, with such a thin squad and without freshening up, it freshening it up, and with Champions it, League, and with Champions League, correct? Mm-hmm. Uh, Chris, same question to you. I don't really have a different follow up, really. I'm just inclined to agree with Karthik. I think, yeah, I, I struggle to, to add anything to, to what he said, to be honest. Yeah, I, I don't know where I stand. I mean, I think with with our analysis, it's always biased by how teams are playing. Had they been playing well, we would have argued the continuity point. Now that they're not, there's an easy counterpoint which we can generate. So I guess we just have to keep our eye on the prize here and see how things play out over the next few weeks, which I guess is a caveat for every single team we analyze. So let's go to our next uh, over-analysis here, Chris. Chelsea beating uh, Burnley sorry, uh, very comfortably. Um, there's no doubt that Chelsea looks different in, I mean, in every single way. Uh, Costa looks like he cares about his facial hair. Hazard looks like he puts hair gel on his hair again. Like They look like they actually care this year. So let's... Uh, Let's, again, try to analyze what's different about Chelsea. Um, and I have three... Uh, they're not completely independent hypotheses. Uh, let's, let me start with that. The first one is... Let me pose this to you. Matic and Angolo Kante in the middle is uh, more conducive to the forward player of, say, Hazard, Costa, etc. than was Matic and Fabregas. Is that, is that why Chelsea has done so well first three games of the season? I think it's helped. Um, Sean Dyche said something about that. Uh, that really, Chelsea are a back five. I think he said a front five. Yeah, back five, a front five, and N'Golo Kante covering every other inch. <laughs> and I think that's actually quite a good way to put it because yeah. what he does, and it's I don't I don't think it's simply a case if he just runs around a lot because actually his distance covered numbers were less than Cesc Fabregas last season. It's his ability to make smart decisions. That's what really helps him. His, his athleticism, his stamina, that's great. It's his ability to read the play and in, intercept, interpret where it's going to end up and then move it quickly. They, they've had that already at Chelsea with Claude Makélélé, and, and we already know the story on that one, how influential he was. It can often seem a little bit sensational. To, to com- I can't think of a better comparison though than Claude Makélélé if anything I think he's a little bit more mobile than Makélélé was yeah, yeah. Uh, and it just changes the dynamic it lets people like Eden Hazard for example play with more freedom because he doesn't have to track back and this is this is the other thing is I think as we look for kind of that 
uniformity between players and, and the team contributing to everything. There are still those players like Eden Hazard who really work best when you don't give them any defensive responsibility. When you push them over the halfway line and say, right, just stay there and, and we'll get you the ball. And that's what really happened for me against Burnley was they consistently gave him the ball, which allowed him to initiate attacks, which allowed him to to drive with the ball, which is something he does best. I think that there are a few, if any, better dribblers in the Premier League than Eden Hazard. Um, and you look at his goal, I think it, it's typified by that. And so when you can almost keep the players doing what they're supposed to be doing or doing what they do best, I think you're always going to have a, a recipe for success realistically. And I think Hazard has is, is kind of alluded to that himself, that you know he's, he's best doing that sort of forward-thinking stuff where he's, he's attacking and not defending. Karthik, uh, the other question, uh, the other hypothesis, and again, like I said, this is not completely independent of the first one. Uh, just, is it simply a difference between Mourinho's style and Conte's style? Where, where Mourinho, uh, both of them can be mm, over, uh, re- I guess in a reductionist way, sort of, assumed to be defensive managers uh, with their, their style of football. But there is a huge difference in their style of football. So is it simply a tactical thing or perhaps a personality thing between Mourinho and Conte? I think it's a personality thing. I think a lot of it had to do with Mourinho grading on that squad last season to the point where uh, the, the players just simply weren't playing for him at the end. Right. I totally agree with that. Um I I don't know. I, I think it's as is true of so many things. It, it the truth is always somewhere in the middle, isn't it, Karthik? And um is is there is there another thing that you think is belies why Chelsea is doing so well right now? Yeah, Conte was the best player in the Premier League last season and they signed mm-hmm. him. Yeah. I, I, and so that that makes the shape of the midfield look. I mean, we're saying that there's a difference between the uh, uh, Antonio Conte team and um and uh the uh the Jose Mourinho team i think the big difference is, is swapping Cesc Fabregas a guy who can't do a lot of running uh, sits in deep positions and still plays some beautiful balls right uh, gerard esque balls but a guy who doesn't who isn't the kind of two-way player conte is not no, nowhere near that you're swap yeah. you're making that one swap so uh, i think that that in a in in a season where um you're talking about uh, teams that are uh, there were obviously other factors, but is that is that enough to take a team from tenth in the league to, to, to fourth or fifth? Yeah, probably. And then uh, you you talk about uh, the the change of manager that might be good enough to take a team from fourth or fifth to, to second or third or first or second. So I, I think that one signing is a big big deal. And then mm-hmm. you've got Matic playing a freer role, and this was the freer role actually Mourinho envisioned for Matic right. sort of last season, and he wasn't able to deliver on it because Fabregas is so immobile for lack of a better word yeah those are great points and we will keep an eye on that as well i think the fabregas matic conte thing and we have to keep doing this then golo conte was the antonio conte the matic uh angola conte and fabregas thing uh is something it makes them a gives them a dynamism as well as work rate it gives them all different options in that center of the park uh that makes them a very formidable force and we'll see how uh uh, Antonio Conte deploys them as the season goes on. Before we continue, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, SeatGeek. We have some really exciting news to share about our sponsor, SeatGeek, which is that SeatGeek is now the official ticketing partner of Major League Soccer. 
SeatGeek is working with the league and its teams to introduce a new ticket buying experience that will make it easier for you to buy, sell, share, and access tickets to MLS matches. Next week, the Indianapolis Colts play their first, their final preseason game against the Bengals at Paul Brown Stadium in Cincinnati. Having never been to a preseason game, I was excited to check out this game, and the first place I went to to check out tickets was SeatGeek, because I knew those other sites would charge me exorbitant fees at checkout. Uh, and I also love how user-friendly the SeatGeek app is. Additionally, SeatGeek does all the price comparison for you by searching multiple ticket sites and ensuring you get the best possible deal. SeatGeek does all the work, and you save time and money. So best of all, our listeners get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. To get your $20 rebate on tickets, download the SeatGeek app, go to the Settings tab, and click Add a Promo Code, enter promo code WSTPOD, and SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. So go ahead, download the SeatGeek app, and enter promo code WSTPOD today. Chris, let's talk about Crystal Palace's draw with Burnmouth. Um, first thing I wanted to talk about was Josh King. You and I talked about Josh King a while ago on ULF. Uh, I I thought this goal kind of went underappreciated. That, that first touch and that finish, exceptionally good. And if Josh King would do more enough of this for Burnmouth, you could you could really see Burnmouth being comfortable and even moving to the you know maybe the top ten of the of the Premier League. But the problem has been that the likes of Josh King do this in very very small doses. Yes, that's that's essentially the the problem of his career is that he's displayed talent, but it's often been in fits and starts. It was a, a similar story at Blackburn. He's he's got a lot of, yeah. I think, desirable attributes. He's exceptionally fast. I think he can make intelligent runs when he wants to. It's it's how often he can put those attributes together to to form what is a, a potentially deadly striker. I liked a lot of what I saw from Bournemouth in the first half. I thought King Wilson they they did link up well. And and but for Steve Mandanda, they could have been maybe two, even three goals up. Um, and I think some of that was was facilitated by the fact Crystal Palace are, are not at a a great position right now from a confidence standpoint. You can see there is a nervousness amongst their group, mm-hmm. um, and I think there's a frustration amongst the supporters as well. Which, in fairness, is is entirely justified because they've won. There was a stat floating on match of the last night. I think it is two of twenty two games in. Uh, 2016. Now, I can hear a thousand Newcastle fans screaming that they had a similar run with Pardew towards the end of his tenure. And hmm. he has to take a lot of the blame for it. Now, in the second half, they rallied. They were a goal down, though, so it meant that Bournemouth could kind of soak up the pressure and, and release it deep and compact. And it did frustrate Palace, and you could see they weren't able to find that many great opportunities. And when they did, Arthur Boric was, was pretty inspirational in goal. The the goal, it's a difficult one to evaluate because it clearly raised the spirits a little bit, but it felt more like relief than something to actually take away. And, you know, Pardew in general is someone I struggle with and, and I think I'd be lying if I didn't say I have a bias towards this because I think he's someone that is first to take credit when it's going right and last to take blame when things are going wrong. And to to me... He spent a lot of money this summer. That's the that's the other thing to consider. He spent a lot of money on players like Benteke, uh, Townsend, and it has to go right from him. And at this point, it, it looks like it's lacking just a little bit of understanding. Now, 
there was a few instances where crosses were coming in and either Wickham and Benteke weren't in the right spot or they weren't gambling into the right areas. That could definitely come with time. My concern, if I'm Alan Pardew, is time may be in short supply. And and that's not to say that Steve Parrish will be quick to sack him. I think Parrish is giving him every opportunity to succeed. I think there will also come a point where the numbers stack up to the point where you can't do anything but sack him. Because as, as you said, 2-22, and 22, it's been a terrible 2016 for Palace. Even the, the cup run aside, it's been a really terrible year and they can't afford to go down with some of the investments they've made. Karthik Pardew has some great dance moves that Chris is not giving him credit for. <laughs> and I have to say that, it, 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 uh, jokes aside, I do have, I feel p- bad for Pardew in one situation here, which is the latest developing Wolf Zaha situation. Uh, Zaha was bought by by uh, by Palace to to give them a dynamism. Of the, you know, they overly reliant on wingers. We've talked about this before. But Zaha was slight, a slightly different player. Zaha has achieved basically nothing, really, at Palace. Uh, and yet, I'm surprised that he wants to move away from Palace because it sounds like he's going to run into the same situation which he had at Manchester United, which is he didn't have enough playing time. He wasn't one of the more important players. And unfortunately for, for Palace and for Pardew, Zaha's importance to this Palace team was apparent when he came on as a sub in the second half because that was the the moment where Palace started playing well. So what does Pardew do with the Zaha situation? Oh, I don't know what he does with the Zaha situation. I, it, it, he seems to collect wingers, although, of course, they've sold Balassi yeah. uh, to, to Everton. Everton. Yeah, but they, they signed Townsend over the summer. I, I'm not sure giggling earlier because, and uh, of course I put myself on mute for that, Chris hit it spot on. I mean, th- th- this is a manager who has never been accountable anywhere he's been. Right. I think about his time even at Reading and at West Ham uh, many moons ago, probably before a lot of our listeners were following uh, this this league and this sport. Uh, he, he's always been a guy who uh, who, who stands forward and is, is quick to toot his own horn, but then when things go badly, it's always someone else's fault or, or a player. Or, he's just a guy that um, I, I just don't, don't know if players actually respect him when they play for him. Uh, maybe some do. Some guys have, have chosen to sign with him for a second time, uh, obviously like uh, Johan Kabai. But I, I'm not sure if, uh, the manager, the, the, the players uh, are, will, will be uh, will be particularly unhappy if, if, if he uh, if he gets the sack. So can I can I say as well relating to Zaha? Pardew said this week that uh, the 15 million offer was derisory and that. Given what Yannick Balassi went for, he thinks that Zaha is better, and so the offer should be much closer to, to that. Zaha is better than Balassi. It's crazy. Mm. And he now, managed these guys. I, I don't. I, I don't think Zaha is in the same category as Balassi. I think Balassi is much better, much more accomplished too in this now, league. Now, granted, Will Zaha is, is a little bit younger than Balassi, so he has time on his side. I think, though, even if you look at Andros Townsend's numbers last season. He managed to get more goals and assists in, I think it was 13 games for Newcastle from January than Will Zaha did the entire season. Balassi had better than, numbers than him as well during the entire season. I honestly think at this stage in Will Zaha's career, I need to start seeing a little bit of end product from him. I keep hearing about how he's a great player, and for a long time I did admire that talent and thought, you know what, I would love someone like him at, at, at my football club. Actually, I think once you get past the tricks and, and all this kind of stuff that looks great on YouTube... There's not a lot there. He doesn't really deliver nearly as much as you would expect from a winger that's costing even 15 million. I would want a lot more end product from him in that sense. And and I found similar watching him 
on uh, Saturday for, for Palace when he came on. It, it was just a situation where you think you've done the first two steps right, but the, the most important one is the one right. you keep messing up. And if, if he's genuinely talking about a player that he thinks is worth 30 million, I don't know what, what part you're saying. I, I can only assume it's something in training. But we're not privy to. <laughs> no, I agree with that. I, yeah, and, I that and that's uh, that's really significant because I think this guy might just be a very good championship player. He was very good for for Palace when they were in the championship. He could be Tom Mintz, and he could be back in the championship real real quickly. They're, honestly, yeah, good points. When we come back, we'll talk about another three to four games and update you on the other leagues uh, uh, results on the other leagues around Europe. So stay tuned for section two of the World Soccer Talk podcast. Section two of the World Soccer Talk podcast. Chris, let's start with Everton's one nothing win over Stoke. First of all, I just feel bad for Shea Given. I mean, that being given an own goal, it's it's you know it's technically correct and it's correct by the letter of the law of own goals, I guess. But it's so unfair after he managed to, I guess, flick the uh, PK strike onto the post. It came back and hit him and went to the goal. Just crazy. Another highlight was Crouch uh, in this this time saving a goal from with an overhead kick. Uh, but what I want to talk to you about was really quickly was Stoke. I feel like this new holding rule in the box is definitely hurting Stoke. Uh, and, uh, and in some ways it's fulfilling this stereotype we have of Stoke of them being this, this rough and tumble team. Uh, Shawcross last week conceded a penalty. Bardsley this week conceding a penalty. We haven't really talked about this new rule. So, what are your thoughts about this this new uh, trigger finger rule of uh, of holding in the box? I think it's a good rule. I think what I would say about the penalty yesterday is I wasn't convinced it was a push personally. I think yeah. that felt a little bit soft. I, I can also say that when I watched Stoke last season, they were fairly consistently guilty of holding and, right. and things like that and, and gaining an edge, if you will, in inverted commas. So I, I think the implementation of the rule is, is a good idea. I think there maybe just needs a little bit more work on defining its boundaries. And the, the difficulty is I think when those kind of set pieces move at such speed, you, you really do get just a split second to look at something and judge whether it's holding or something like that. Um, I mean, that was the case in the, the Palace game with uh, the penalty. That was a, a fairly blatant one, which, which was easier. Whereas you look at the bars you want and think, I, I don't see a, a really strong push there or anything that I would consider noticeable. Um, if anything, I see him maybe put his hand on his back, but it didn't seem as if he was pushing him at least. So it's it's something that I think the kinks will work out. Um, I think much like the situation with descent, um, we'll, we'll have to find a, a common ground or a, a medium point where it, it balances itself out so that we're not getting yellow cards just for addressing the referee. Karthik, the, the player I think that has been the most improved outside of Hazard and Costa uh, is Kevin Miralish in the first three games of this season. Another good game, I thought. Uh, with Miralish, we've sometimes had the same complaint we just talked about with uh, with Wilf Zaha, that there's no end product. But I feel like in previous years when he would have turned the ball over, this season he's finding another player. It might not be the most incisive pass, but at least he's retaining possession. He has all those tricks. He can beat a man. Uh, and... I'm curious what you think has been the resurgence, uh, the reason for the resurgence of Kevin Miralish. Liberation from Roberto Martinez. <laughs> I shouldn't have asked. I knew oh, the answer. Of course, he's not truly liberated because when he goes to the national team, duty. that's right. <laughs> he's 
Can you imagine? I don't. Did you ever watch you that? Karthik, World Cup, how we're gonna react? Yeah. To did this? you did you ever watch that uh, video where they uh, where they showed the reaction of Lukaku uh, and Miralish finding out that uh, that Martinez had been appointed manager of Belgium? It was priceless. It Anyone was who hasn't seen that YouTube video, you. <laughs> <laughs> you, you you've got to yeah we we don't we lose our composure every now and then on the world soccer talk pod but i've really lost it now <laughs> you you have to you have to look that up but i i think lukaku it is a manager change because i think the the director for martinez was to, to take guys on whip balls into the box there were these crosses that would would end up finding defenders giveaways i think the director from kuman is to find a teammate Pull it back if you have to. Wait for help. Not go a million miles an hour type of thing. And um, I think it, it's 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 pretty good. I think it, it's it's different. And I also think Morales is coming off a summer where he did not get selected by the former manager Mark Van Bom, uh, uh, Mark Wilmonts. Uh, I should mention, by the way. Uh, we we make fun of Roberto Martinez and people who did have not listened to us during international. No, no, no. Hang on, you make fun of Roberto well, Martinez. I make fun of Roberto Martinez, and, and I and most of the most of the things I said about him proved to be correct. That <laughs> I was on an island two years ago, and then people generally uh, gradually inhabited the island I had staked out to the point where we we had a pop overpopulation problem by the end of last season. But um, but. He isn't. He's got to be a managerial upgrade over Mark Wilmots for Belgium. And considering the amount of talent Belgium has, and yes, he has worked with Lukaku and Morales before. You you, you think probably Belgium's going to be better than they were under Wilmots? Um, but I think I think it has a lot to do with the managerial change and change in style, change in directive. It also could be an early season thing. He has to show this consistency. Remember when he signed with uh, with. Uh, Everton many years ago, we saw this spectacular play right. from him, and then it would come and it would go. And there just wasn't ever a consistency, even in the Moyes era, to some of these Everton players. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. And, and I think it will be, I think in a game like this, uh, where, where they had to take the impetus against Stoke, I think it's okay to give Miralish and, and Barkley both the free role like they had. But in, in games against a tougher opposition, uh, top of the table, I don't know exactly how you fit both of those players into that puzzle alongside Lukaku uh, from a tactical standpoint. Maybe going to uh, 4-3-3, which they've played a little bit. So, yeah, lots, there are lots of questions. But one thing's for sure, Ronald Koeman is one of the best managers to have to fix some of those uh, potential uh, personnel issues. All right, let's talk about Lester Swans. Another manager we love is Claudio Ranieri, uh, the Tinkerman, quote-unquote, that we've been predicting would show up, hasn't really shown up yet. And I'm going back to my analysis, Chris, which is that they were unlucky for the last two weeks. This week, things fell into place. For example, Vardy's shot strikes the post. Last week would have gone off the post out into uh, Rosie. This, This week goes inside of the post into the goal. The second goal for Wes Morgan... Some sloppy defending from Swans falls right to the feet of Morgan when no one knows where the ball is. He strikes that ball last week. It would have gone nowhere this time in the goal. So again, with Leicester, I don't think they're doing that much wrong. I don't think they're doing that much differently from last season. And I'm hoping that this will be the start of a run for them. I think it, it, I'm not sure if it's down to, to look as much as a change in opponent. I think... They've had opponents 
previously in, in Hull and uh, Arsenal, who between them, one wanted to sit off and soak up the pressure. The other one, I think, had a, a better defence and wanted to come out a bit. For, for me, Swansea are a team that I think could be in trouble this season. And I say that because I think they've sold a number of reliable key players, the likes of Ayu, the likes of Williams. And that defensive pairing for me looks like just a disaster waiting to happen. Um, I think there will be good weeks and bad weeks for Leicester. It depends entirely on how the teams approach them. Um, it looks as if they've got Slimani from Sporting Lisbon, or Sporting, excuse me. Um, I hope didn't offend any Portuguese listeners there. <laughs> We'll, he will give we'll them just some... send them a copy of the Fort Lauderdale Strikers DVD. <laughs> um, <laughs> he, he will give them something a little bit different. Again, I think wait until they've been on a little bit of a bad run, assuming one happens this, this season. That's when I think you'll see the tinker. I think at the minute, Ranieri sees no need to change because there hasn't really been a great enough sample size of the second season to determine whether they've been found out in inverted commas. Hmm. Karthik, uh, talk to me a little bit more about Swansea then. I mean, Chris has kind of hinted on some points there. You and I were a little bit higher on Swansea in our season preview than uh, Chris was. Have you seen enough from them to convince you that they'll end up somewhere where we thought they would end up? No. They, I, I, the, I, the more more and more I watch them, I think Chris might have been onto something. He might have caught this before we did. I don't like what I'm seeing from them at all. There's just it just doesn't seem to be any incisive play, any kind of uh, it, it. It just doesn't look right. It doesn't feel right. And now we're we're, we're we are three games into the season, right? So you don't want to overreact to things. But oftentimes you can tell what sides are going to struggle based on their opening fixtures and how they play in them, not just results. And they just look like they're going to struggle. It's going to be a grind to get to 40 points or 42 points, whatever they need this season to stay up, 38 points. They um, they look like they're going to struggle to get results. And that while they still have this ability to control possession at times, they look particularly vulnerable at the back without Ashley Williams there, right. who really held it together the last few seasons. And I, I just don't see Llorente thus far developing into the uh, Michu bone type score although i have to say it's not necessarily Llorente's fault we've seen him do a lot at, at, at bigger clubs than swansea in the past i think it's um a situation where they just don't have the service in midfield sigurdsson has not looked good at all for me in these first three games so i am very concerned about swansea i i just don't i don't know what um what the solution is if they have to sign someone in the midfield or another center back in the next three days or if um, this is the team they're going with till January and they're going to come out of Christmas, out of the Christmas New Year's period with a um, out of the Boxing Day period with uh, a need to really shop in January to stay up. I think it's going to be one or the other. They're either going to have to buy in the next three days or, or do something in January. Otherwise, they're probably I don't want to say they're probably going to go down, but I, it's it's hard for me to pinpoint the teams yeah. that are definitely going down at this point because Hull has been better than we thought. And. I think Burnley is going to is going to stick around the 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 relegation spots, but in a position to push. As Gray doesn't get suspended and they have Vokes fit because they have two goal scorers and teams that come up from the championship generally don't have two guys that can score goals like those two can. Right. So Swansea could be in a lot of trouble. Yeah, I I think your point about signing someone in midfield is valid because 
last season, consistently their best players were the midfielders and Sigurdsson, who played in that attacking midfielder role, and uh, Ki Sung Young, who I thought was very underrated, Leroy Fair, who was also underrated, and this season they've they've not those three players in particular have not clicked yet. So, uh, and then of course losing Ashley Williams, who I think I'm pretty sure it was him that won the penalty for the in that Everton one nothing win. So, so it must be even hurting even more to see uh, him winning penalties and defending well while uh, Swansea is struggling. Let's talk about a team that didn't struggle this week, Chris. Arsenal beating Watford away from home three one. This game was practically practically over in the first half uh, with with Ozil scoring the third goal and and having an assist. Um, there's no doubting how good of a footballer Ozil is. I mean, whether you look at the numbers uh, or you look at you know whether you actually watch football or you just look at numbers, uh, Ozil is a pretty special player. So, I mean, Wenger came out after the game and said something that was that just blew my mind is that he thought Ozil might get. I think he said 20 goals, uh, which is insane to me because Ozil has never broken, never scored more than eight or nine goals ever, even during his Real Madrid years. How, do you see Ozil as as the as the way he's going to solve this goal scoring conundrum? No, I, I don't. To be honest, he's never been that kind of goal scorer. I think. I think the old Arsenal situation in general is, is a very complicated one at this precise moment. Uh, you see some Arsenal fans even complaining in the wake of that win against Watford, saying it's papering over the cracks. The Arsenal team in general has a lot of potential as it stands right now. I think it needs a little bit of confidence to it. Um, I think it needs a little bit of steel, which can come internally, I think, from mental strength. But I'd be very surprised if Ozil became this goal-scoring midfielder. I think you look throughout his career. For me, he's always been someone that creates rather than finishes chances. And that's not a bad thing. I, I personally believe to have a player like that is important. The the more pressing concern or the, the thing that stops Ozil for me is you look at last season, post-January, it was down tills. It, it didn't really do much. Um, and I think he needs that consistency. Arsenal need that consistency. But this is an issue we've discussed with that football club for years now is their lack of consistency, um, their ability to go on these fantastic runs and and forge a title challenge from sort of November until March and then slip away. It's it's a a fairly infuriating situation, I imagine, as an Arsenal fan that could be equal parts manager, equal part equal parts player. Um, the difficulty for them this season is that they've got genuine rivals to any attempt to, to win a Premier League title. So you could argue they've got even more excuse to be inconsistent if they want to be. Yeah, I should fact check myself there. So he has scored, he has scored double figures before Real Madrid. He scored ten goals twice. Where they Brem- during his time at Bremen, he scored eleven goals in a season once. But I think in general, the point I was trying to make is still accurate, even though the actual nitty gritties weren't. Karthik. Um, with with uh, Arsenal, what I wanted to ask you was that that midfield there with Katorla and Granit Xhaka. Uh, Xhaka, we know, is is a good footballer. He was very good last season, one of the standout players there. But uh, I guess, do you see that as a good balance? Because that is an area that we have focused in on for Arsenal uh, for many many seasons. I think I think the analysis of how whether their forward line is good or their defense is good goes in and out. But the consistent analysis is how how strange and 
uncoordinated they can be in midfield. So now with this Shaka Casola thing that they're trying, is that a good balance in your opinion? It is if Shaka Shaka plays at the level he did in this game. I think when Aaron Ramsey comes back, they have a decision to make because Ramsey, you want you're tempted to slide Ramsey back in there. Cathola is keep in mind his age. He's uh, he's 32, 33 now. Maybe maybe he's not that old, but he's in his 30s. So you you might need to manage his games. So a rotation in that in that group of of bringing in. Also, um, thirty-one. Uh, Ramsey, yeah. thirty-one. Mm-hmm. El Nenny is is another guy. Obviously, if they have. Not, a, what uh, happened to you're not you're not you don't rate Wilshire anymore? Is that what's going on, Karthik? Uh No, I uh, <laughs> I think that you should play Co- Coughlin, and then you should um, you should depend on those other four guys I mentioned. Wilshire is, uh, and I understand he obviously played in this game. It's a guy who's played more minutes for England in the last uh, fifteen months than he has for Arsenal. So I. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not. I'm not concerned about him. But so here's the here's the point, though. This these sorts of partnerships always look good for Arsenal in these sorts of games mm-hmm. against the Watfords and, and and the Stokes. And we've seen now Arsenal has gone. There used to be this bugaboo about Arsenal having these banana skins against lesser teams away from home. The last two or three seasons, they've actually been very businesslike and gotten these results. It's when they play better teams, as we saw when they played Liverpool at home in the first match of the season, they, they get these shocking results. They, they, they can't beat the better teams in this league consistently enough. And they couldn't even beat Chelsea last season. Think about that. So, yeah. I think uh, we have to be concerned. They got beat by Liverpool. They should have been beat by Leicester. They were certainly outplayed in that game. So those are the two two good teams they've played. I, I This game doesn't change any of my assessment of Arsenal. We need to uh, wrap up our – give us you a wrap-up on the other leagues here. So we'll start really quickly with Spain. Uh, in Spain, in La Liga, Real Madrid and Barcelona kept up their perfect record while Atletico Madrid were frustrated away from home to newly promoted Lejanes, uh, which is a great story because their stadium, much like Burnmouth, is, I think, an 11,000-seater. So I think it's pretty amazing uh, that they are producing, uh, that they're in the in La Liga now uh, and are a great story. Uh, in Bundesliga, Bayern walloped Werder Bremen 6-0 with Lewandowski scoring a hat-trick, whereas Dortmund narrowly beat Mainz 2-1. Whereas in Serie A, Inter and Roma both played out draws while Napoli beat AC Milan 4-2. Uh, and as I was discussing uh, before we started recording, the Juventus game was the one that uh, I really enjoyed. Uh, it was a, it was one that led to Sami Khedira, uh, that was decided by a Sami Khedira goal. Uh, Sami Khedira playing in this in this role, uh, in a more advanced role that was kind of introduced to him during his time with the German national team about three or four seasons ago is when he started playing that advanced role and it's working really, really well now, especially in the absence of Paul Pogba at Juventus. Meanwhile, in France, Monaco beat uh, beat uh, won 3-1 at home to mighty PSG, actually. A game that was decided by a brilliant performance by Moutinho and Fabinho. Um, so something that we will be keeping an eye on kind of dis- defies that analysis that I, that myself and a lot of people try to give, which is that PSG is basically uh, running a one-horse race out in France. When we come back, we'll wrap up the last three games of uh, this weekend uh, and call it a night for the World Soccer Talk podcast. So hang in. We'll be back for the part three of World Soccer Talk podcast.
So at this point, we will usually have a transfer update for you. But given that this is the international week coming up, we're going to do a, an extended, uh, well, we're going to do a podcast next week where we talk update you on the transfer window and it will have shut by that point as well. So let's really quickly tell you, uh, let you know, as you probably do, that West Brom, uh, Middlesbrough and Southampton Sunderland played out uh, draws. Uh, the first one between West Brom and Middlesbrough being a nil-nil, Southampton with a 1-1. Uh, we're kind of going to skip those so we can focus heavily in the last uh, 10 or so minutes on the two Manchester clubs. Uh, let's start with the Manchester United game, uh, Karthik. one nothing win for Manchester United. Uh, there's, a f- there's a feeling around Manchester United supporters and apparently the players themselves that the good days are back. Well, yeah, when you spend as much money as they have, they should be back. <laughs> yeah, but... Uh, it's I mean, ironic Marcus Rashford got the winner, right? Because right. We're, we're reading this week about how he'd been discarded, basically. Yeah, it, yeah, it's interesting how, what, what happens to Rashford. I am I mean, I want to talk to you guys about that because he had a breakout season last season. We know season number two can be the tricky one for, for many players, especially especially Manchester United. Yadazai. Uh, uh, Kiko Makeda, uh, Fraser Campbell. Um, I think the only one that I can think of at the top of my head that did well in his second season in a long time now was Johnny Evans. I think his second Although season... Although Makeda did score a big goal against Chelsea that year that did almost keep the title in Manchester. Well, but Makeda, that was the only thing he did yeah. that entire season, that second right. season. But he did mm-hmm. score... Um, but, but I mean, like Yanusai, Fraser Campbell, those are great points. I mean, those guys, both second season, just completely fell off the face of the earth, yeah. more and or I, less. I, I wonder about what happened to the Rashford because he, he – are we – I guess the question is, are we going to expect Rashford to be rotated in another squad or is he now – coming down to being, you know, like a super sub, as some some United supporters will have you believe that he's the next Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. It's, it's not a bad role for a young... Uh, well, it is a bad role probably for a young player, but it's not a bad role for a typical player at a club like Manchester United. I mm-hmm. think you've got a situation where you can use Jesse Lingard in that role. You can use it's a little bit of a different player. You can use Rashford in that role. Mkhitaryan, it appears... Um, Somehow Juan Mata is hanging on with Jose Mourinho, much to my surprise, and I think the surprise of many people. Mm-hmm. It looks like Mkhitaryan is a bit on the margins and isn't quite up to uh, snuff, which, by the way, I'm not surprised about. There were long periods when he was with Dortmund where he would just fade into these kind of dips that would take him mo- uh, weeks and months to come out of, including the entire first half of uh, the 2014-2015 season. So um, I think there, there are options. But the fact that he turned to Lingard in this situation with them in a position where they needed a goal, I think is a very promising sign. You mean Rashford? Uh, sorry, yeah, yeah. Rashford. Excuse me, yes. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you there. And Chris, uh, you made some really good points about Rashford on front three uh, where you talked about the fact that you expect crests and troughs uh, in, in a young player's career. Uh, but I'm, I'm curious, like, what do you think is – the the correct rule how do you what is the right way to handle a 19 year old at a club like manchester united where the expectation is ridiculous uh and unfair for a young player at the same time you have this talented player who somehow every time he touches the ball he se- he seems to score every time he's in those situations so w- how is Mourinho or really any manager supposed to handle a talent like that i think you pull and you push 
So sometimes, and Paul Scholes talked about this, sometimes you take a young player out just to give them that hunger back, just so they don't feel like they've made it. Um, one of the things I admire most about Rashford is he plays the game with absolutely no fear. He drives it at people, and, and the goal is an influencer, definitely. It's a huge thing. What he did apart from that, though, was commit players, go at them. And I think I've talked about it before on this pod that as as far back as 2014, Dario Grady was talking about the importance for young players to learn how to be good in one-on-one situations and take players on. And that is something that Rashford can do. It's not always the prettiest. It's perhaps not always the the most trick-laden, but it gets results. He, he goes past people. Um, and I think he, he has the ability to, to always follow things in. And he's talked about that, that that's one of the, the key things he was taught was to put himself in those kind of positions because you never know when the ball will, will come to you. I think in terms of his development, as, as I said, you know, the, the, there will be peaks and troughs. I think you have to almost encourage his lack of fear and then be a support structure when things maybe don't go right so that he can bounce back from them and then also keep it so he's he's not maybe buying into his own hype when things start to go really right for him, which they have done so far. He's already scored for England. He's a senior international. He's already scored a, a few times for, for Manchester United in big games. That's when you, you have to be there for them and, and be like a father figure, which is why I think you look at a lot of players who were precocious talents who were good at a young age they all talk about the ones that succeed at least that father-like figure who helped them through that period of their career and that's what Mourinho needs to be for him and it's you could argue it, it's perhaps a, a bit of a, a new and unique space for him to be in because I think I saw a stat floating around saying that's the first teenager to score as a substitute for Mourinho or something along those lines huh. um Regardless, he's not really, in my opinion, been known for working well with with young players, especially young strikers. I mean, look at what happened with Lukaku, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is going to be new ground for him. And I think it's, honestly, I think it's ground he has to traverse. There is no scenario I see where he could maybe even consider selling Rashford on because I think already they see him as a huge part of that club's future because of everything that is associated with young players in Manchester United and producing their own. It is a, a staple of Manchester United to do that. And I think, again, he has to be be part of that future. And Mourinho has to do everything he can to include him. My my fear here with Rashford is this. When I look at look back at the players that didn't make the cut, and, and I, I think Yanezai is the best example of this because I think Yanezai arguably had, had more talent than Rashford does. I think what happened with him between the Moyes and Van Hall era is that he was asked to focus more on the defensive side, on the, on the being a midfielder, quote unquote, side of his of his game, and and it, I think it weighed him down to the point uh, that that Van Hall's tactics, which were unless you're exactly you know unless you're against a person uh, against a defender in the wide in a wide area you do not take a man on one on one so my concern with rashford simply is this that as long as 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 chris you put it as long as you allow him to express himself in a creative way as long as you allow him to enjoy football and don't burden him with the insane tactical side of things for now uh, I think it's a good thing for Rashford in the long run and especially at a, for a player at his age uh, you have to give him the freedom to express himself and in that sense I think Rashford in, is in a 
in a position where he basically is the only one competing with Ibrahimovic for that striker position because that's the position where you have the most creativity. You're allowed to take players on one-on-one in, in any system, even in Van Hal's system, that was true. So I think what we're seeing is that finally under Mourinho, we will see Rashford and Ibrahimovic competing for that top position as striker. And it bodes well because they give they give two different options to Mourinho and at the same time uh, one is very young one is older so there's experience versus uh, the unpredictability so I think it bodes well uh, in the long run caveats aside Karthik the thing uh, I'd say about Yanazai though and and this is something I have noticed watching him for Sunderland and the the brief appearances he's made I think his fall was self-inflicted I think his attitude really cost him Um, and I, I don't think that same fate will fall Rashford because I think he's quite mature and has quite a lot of self-awareness to his situation. Watching Yanazai already for Sunderland, there are moments where he sort of flounces around, where he's a little bit sort of moody and stroppy, and you can see why David Moyes said that it's up to him to save his career at this point, and it's himself that put in that position. Now, what I would say, I was there when he scored the two goals against Sunderland for Manchester right. United, yeah. and I remember how gleefully and almost maniacally people were talking about could he play for England could, is right. there any way we could get right. him for that in, in many ways typifies one of the big issues with the Premier League is that we are so quick to crown stars if mm. only so we can start working on the campaign to destroy them mm. and I think Yanazai was a huge example of that the goals he scored were very good goals I, I remember thinking you know the guy's really got talent this is not some some YouTube sensation he's, right. he's clearly got something about him but as I said, relating to Rashford, there's peaks and troughs in there. There's going to be days where he can't do it. And again, the Moy situation like he didn't help. I don't think he was maybe the best coach for him to have um, at that period. But again, I, th- I think to compare the two, I think Yanazai caused a lot of his own problems. And mm. I would hope for his sake, at least, he will realise that at Sunderland. And with all due respect to Sunderland, will realise that his potential should have him playing at a, a higher stage than than that. Yeah, great point. Uh, Karthik, last thing about this game. Um, what I what struck, what struck me in this game is as, uh, first of all, Hull City defended, like we thought they would defend, big credit to Mike Phelan. But the, what I was thinking in my head was last season we've, we were posed with this position where United dominated 60-70% possession, but what would happen is around the 70th minute mark, when United really started to put the pressure on, there would be a breakaway for the other team and they would score on United and then the heads would drop. That is what was the analysis for last season. And to be honest, it was fairly accurate because it happened quite a few times. Uh, if we remember, the reason United ended up even fifth is because of the number of saves De Gea made. So United were hemorrhaging chances last season. This season, when uh, sorry, in this game, when United was piling on the pressure, somehow, whether that's based on whole cities, you know, the fact that Snodgrass wasn't playing that well, etc. The point I'm asking you about is, it felt as though there was a strength in that midfield and that defense that wasn't there last season, uh, because whole city were not given the chance to really break out of. Uh, their, their own midfield positions in the, from those banks of four that the, that they created. And I wonder if it's down to the fact that Fellaini is the one playing in that deeper deeper role versus Carrick or Bastian Schweinsteiger, who you could easily outrun in, in on a counterattack. 
or Schneiderlin. Yeah, I, I think uh, look, I think uh, Fellini has played very well these first three games, very, very well. And it seems to be a, a good foil, particularly in these last two games for Pogba. I, I would point out Hull did have a few chances in the second half to score, but they didn't come on breaks, right? They came because of a, a set piece set or, pieces, or right. de- yeah, or so, uh, some sort of decent build-up play. But uh, uh, Mike Phelan has done just a phenomenal job. Uh, a guy that obviously everybody around Manchester United knows very well. I, I think they're probably very happy for him, uh, how well he's doing at Hull. Uh, hopefully he'll get that job permanently. I can't see I can't see them finding a better manager than him right now, yeah. considering how this team seems to have responded to him. I mean, even yesterday, with the chips down, it took this late Rashford winner, uh, and they looked apart. The Hull didn't look like a team. They, they only looked like a team hanging on in the last seven to ten minutes. Right. Up until about minute 80 or 82, they didn't look like a team hanging on. They looked like a yeah. team that could get maybe steal, steal the results, steal the goals. So uh, I was uh, pleased with what I saw from them, and, and – uh, Chris had made this point on the podcast uh, several seasons ago when uh, Spurs sold Tom Huddleston to uh, to um, uh, to to Hull, a decision at the time under uh, Andre Villas Boas that we didn't quite understand what, what, why that decision was made. Mm-hmm. And and I, I've seen in these first three games Huddleston Huddleston back to his best. He's controlling the tempo of games. He's a two way player. He's got a great range of passing. Uh, and he can even uh, launch a rocket from outside the area. So I, I really, uh, I really liked what we saw from Hull. But yes, on, uh, back to your question. I know I, uh, I diverted there from it. I, I think Fellaini is a keeper now for United. There's still rumors he'll be sold in the next three days. I don't see how they do that at this point. I don't think uh, he gives you something completely different than uh, Carrick and and Schneiderlin. I think certainly you want to play Carrick at times because of uh, his, his distribution, his ability to keep the ball moving, uh, particularly maybe in Europe, you want to play Carrick. You're, although they're in, they're in Europa League, right? Not in Champions League. But, thanks for that, but still, thanks for that, uh, No, no, I, I did. I really <laughs> Champions League. I wasn't, uh, it just occurred to me that that bit of analysis. Sure it maybe. did. But, but still, but still, uh, you might want to play Carrick in Europe and against some of the top Premier League teams when you play in Arsenal, when you play at Chelsea. But, um, I think you keep Fellaini, and I think you keep him in this team. It seems he and Pogba have already developed a level of understanding, at least in positioning, mm-hmm. uh, that uh, it may take some time for Carrick and Schneiderlin to develop with uh, with Pogba. So, and we know uh, Schweinsteiger is not part of the plans. Right. So uh, that, that's not even a consideration, right? Let's move ahead to the last game uh, that we're going to discuss today, which is Manchester City's win against West Ham. Um, Sterling, Chris, with another good game. The first weekend, uh, the first podcast, sorry, first game week review of World Soccer Talk, we talked about how uh, th- that Pep Guardiola builds, builds this system that allows the ball to be brought to the final third, and then those players have creativity, and perhaps that's the reason Sterling is doing well. Last week, t- we talked about the role of De Bruyne uh, with Karthik in that 4-3-3 for, uh, formation. I want to talk to you about the Fernandinho role, because what Guardiola has done uh, the w- one summary I would have of Guardiola's time as manager as a whole is he has brought back the importance of the holding midfielder to the front of football to the point that I think now when people talk about building systems, etc., they talk about the holding midfielder as the crucial uh, point of that system, whether we're talking about Busquets or Xabi Alonso, etc., uh, etc. Et Do you think Fernandinho is a good enough player to play that role for Pep Guardiola? 
I'd say so. I, I, I don't think he's perfect. I think his his yellow card showed that he was a little bit caught up in the the initial tempo and how quickly the game started. I, I think Guardiola's sort of inclusion of a deep line midfielder that shouldn't come as a surprise because it's a role he played himself. Mm-hmm, and I think right. it's it's a role that kind of faded out as he got a little bit older himself, and it it actually stopped a few teams trying to sign him when he was available on a free transfer from Barcelona. Um, I, I think I think realistically, there are, if we compare him to the last sort of deep-lying playmaker that, that Guardiola had in, in Xabi Alonso, there are certainly ways I think he's better than Xabi Alonso. Um, like what? Like what? I think his ability to cover the ground, I think his, his right. tackling, even though I've just critiqued it, um, is is overall a little bit better. Mm-hmm. His passing, of course, is not. That's yeah. the that's very the few key. people can pass better than Xabi Alonso, though. Exactly, it's like yeah. saying you're not as good an entertainer as Prince. There's no shame in that. Um, <laughs> I think he will be able to sort of tick enough of the boxes, if you will, or provide enough of the um, attributes that, that Guardiola would like. I mean, this is the other thing as well. Gundogan is is still to play for this team, right. and I actually. Good Funny point. enough, for, forgot about that today um, when I was watching it, and only realised kind of halfway through when I was scanning through the the squad list that he can come in, and you can argue is, is the perfect example of what he wants from that position. So that competition could spur Fernandinho on because I think there is a quality there. I think it would be unfair if we just started um, dismantling every player that that wasn't there when Guardiola started because actually. I think Fernandinho has a lot of talent and has shown that during his City career. So the idea of him being reinvented, so to speak, is is maybe a little bit too far. Karthik, you, you were pretty sceptical of City's chances uh, in the Premier League and, and this season as a whole. Uh, I think some of that comes from the fact that you are... A, you, I think you're setting yourself up not to get called out on social media sometimes, which I, I feel bad for you because I saw... Uh, the the pro rel stuff today that you were dealing with, so I uh, I no, have sympathy for pro rel. I'm just going to take a little uh, yeah. little uh, point of personal privilege here, and I think everybody who listens to this podcast will find it hilarious. The pro rel people in the United States were holding up RB Leipzig as an example of. <laughs> Is that true? Yeah, that's how it all wow. started. I'm like, wait a second. You guys always decry bought promotion. Orlando <laughs> City bought promotion. Uh, Minnesota United bought promotion. Portland Timbers bought promotion. And you're holding up this team because they were about to kick off. Red Bull Leipzig. Or, or, or B Leipzig, excuse me. There, mm-hmm. um, And these guys were talking. This team has been promoted for the first time Yikes. to Bundesliga one in their history, and they've gotten four promotions or whatever. They were just buying the narrative, uh, reading the narrative, taking the narrative, not realizing this team is the most uh, controversial subject in German mm-hmm. football in some time. How they've just essentially bought their way up the divisions right. and could eventually buy their way because they have the kind of resources that community-based clubs in, in Germany don't have in a time when German clubs are having to sell players to Premier League clubs, even big clubs, corporate clubs like Bayer Leverkusen are selling players. I mean, Leipzig could could be in the top four in a couple of seasons. This team that was yeah. an amateur fifth division team a few years ago. So it's uh, that's how that whole thing started. I think I people mean, just, just are European great. football fans that listen to this podcast will we'll, we'll, we'll take my side, quite frankly. Yeah. 
I mean, it, it's just a perfect example of how a lot of those pro rail guys just don't Google stuff before they send out a hateful. Yeah, they, they don't uh, really watch football because if they right, knew anything right. about football or the global game, other than their ideological talking points, they would know Leipzig is not the. That is right, definitely exactly. not the team you want to champion. Champion, champion Bournemouth, but don't champion Leipzig. Right. Agreed. So, but I, so Karthik, yeah, coming back to this, I, I have sympathy for you in that sense, but. Have you seen more of? Are you a little more convinced on City? Or are you still going to claim that they're going to finish sixth? Which is you're, you're literally the only person. Oh, I thought you said sixth, so fifth or sixth. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I mean, I, I assume Arsenal is is going to come on at some point, but right now, I, I think City are one of the top three teams in the league, and and certainly the. Uh, I mean, literally, the, yeah. Well, yeah, no, but they are <laughs> one of the top three teams in the way they're playing. I, I would say the top. That the, the teams that have played the best this season have been uh, the teams at the top of the table. I'm not Everton. Everton is ahead of Hull, I believe, but Hull has played better than them. So the top four teams have been these three, the three big guns, and then and then Hull City, who mm-hmm. took United all the way to the death yesterday. So that would be, yeah, they've they've been good. I think uh, what we're finding is that Nolito and Sterling are fitting in particularly well in Pep's system, and that's important. That's really important. I think you've also got an, uh, a possibility also of doing some different things, as we saw with Samir Nasri today, playing him out wide, playing him in the Nolito role, playing him as a, as a second striker maybe at times. The, the, big, uh, the big question will come when injuries strike, Aguero injury or potential suspension now. He could be, he could right. be suspended for the next right. three games because of violent conduct. Uh, I'm not sure... Aguero affects the movement of this team as much as if you took Silva or De Bruyne out. Now, both those guys have had injuries in recent years. Silva is over the age of 30. If you take Silva out and replace him with Nasri in this particular system, does it work the same way? Because we saw under Pellegrini, uh, not last season, but um, the, previous, the, the first season Pellegrini was at City, that if you took Silva out of the team and put Nasri in instead, it didn't really make a difference, right? right? That they were both very good and they both could play in that system kind of at an equal level. Silva is just a, a, a more uh, uh, what's the word I look for? He's just a more reliable person, right? He's not a head case like like Nasri. But in terms right. of creativity and, and ability on the ball in, in tight spaces, they both have something that most players in, in the English game don't have. But uh, the question is, when you have to start swapping guys out, when Sterling gets swapped out for Sané, do you do you have a drop off? When Nolito gets swapped out for whoever that replacement player is, uh, do you have a drop off? Gundawan, will he adjust to the Premier League? Will he be fit enough to play right. enough games so that Fernandinho doesn't have to play 50 games again? Because Fernandinho last season, City went all the way to the final of the League Cup. Uh, City went all the way to the um, semifinals of the Champions League. Fernandinho had to play basically every match. He, hmm. he he's that player. Chris just talked about him. He's that one kind of linchpin player in the team. You could rotate, swap other guys out, including Aguero. You could swap him out for Bone or Iannaccio in, in certain games, but you could never take Fernandinho out of the team. If Gundawan is not fit, and we know Fernando can't do the job in this system, right. he's, a, he's a pure defensive midfielder. I, I uh, you know, you really worry if this thing is going to, um, um, is, is this, the consistency is going to is going to continue. But uh, one one other point, I think on the back line, uh, John Stones played very. He didn't play Chris, this well. Chris, are you okay? You are those fireworks going off in your room? <laughs> <laughs> They're not. Sorry, it's just my chair. 
right. I, I would just real quickly say John Stones is uh, looking like no one's going to say a 47 million pound signing is the signing of the season, but it's looking mm-hmm. like a really, really, really good signing considering how uh, how many people scratch your head at the at the cost so, thus far. It just is. He's a better half so even if he makes defensive mistakes it seems like he's the kind of player who just fits naturally into a pep system and uh, a type of player pep needed and, and was going to go ahead and overpay to get because he didn't have that play. he didn't inherit that kind of player on the back line at city and he needed that guy and it seems like at least for a system money well spent yeah three three years ago guys uh united and city started off the season incredibly well it involved included a 8-2 win over arsenal for united a 5-1 i think win uh, over Tottenham, and then United played City and lost 6-1. Next game, United plays Manchester City. It's going to be a huge one in two weeks, two very good teams, two very different teams, and and probably, uh, as we've mentioned, all agreed on in that, general. That was actually five years ago, I would mention. Because oh, the was last it was five years, years ago. Yeah, that's how much time flies. Uh, oh, goodness. Yeah, because the the the... the that was the last time I think that the Manchester teams both came out of the gates so quickly mm-hmm. uh, was the 2011-12 season. And, and keep in mind that season, now Chelsea started equally quickly this season. Keep in mind that season, there was a 19-point gap between second-place Manchester United and third-place Arsenal. Mm-hmm. Could these two teams run away and hide again this season? I don't think so, but that's the precedent since you mentioned that season. 19-point yeah. gap between second and third. I guess time all runs together when you're doing a pointless phd next week we'll be back uh, to talk about the transfer window we'll be wrapping up our thoughts on that as well as previewing the manchester derby and talking about the other games so make sure you tune in for that we have a lot coming up for you uh, and on behalf of everyone here at world soccer talk myself nipun chopra chris hennaj karthik take us away unless you're alan parter you're enjoying your football during this international break